So uh, if you can grab your Bibles, we're going to be jumping around, uh, across, around the Bible quite a bit this morning. Um, verses are going to come up on the screen behind me. So we're going to be reading quite a bit of uh, Scripture this morning. Uh, a friend of mine, James Lusk, who used to be on our um, eldership team here at Anthem Church, whenever he would teach a sermon that contained lots of Scripture, he always used to say, I'm going to let the Bible do the heavy lifting. And that's in essence what we're gonna be doing today. I don't wanna convince you about fasting. I'm gonna hopefully share some practical insights, but I want the Word of God to be instructing us and teaching us and challenging us around this subject of fasting this morning. And what I wanna do as we get started today is I wanna first off read about four or five verses from the book of Psalms. Um, just follow along on, this, on the screen behind me. And as I do that, I want you to try and identify the common theme through these five verses. We're gonna start in Psalm 27, verse four. David writes, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then in verse eight, he goes on to say, my heart says of you, seek his face. And then he replies, your face, Lord, I will seek. First two verses of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Then the first verse of Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And then finally in Psalm 84 verse two, my soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And this actually is the overwhelming sentiment that's found in the book of Psalms. So the question is, what is the common theme or what is the common thread through those five or six verses that I read? Or let me ask it this way. If those verses capture the heart of what it means to, to follow Jesus, what should our greatest longing and our ultimate desire be? And I hope that you can see in these verses that it's for God himself. Our ultimate desire is, is not for the things that God can do for us. God is incredibly gracious. He, he gives us things. He blesses us. But, but I hope what we desire more than that is for God himself. One thing, David writes, above all else, my greatest priority is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, it's your face, Lord, that I seek. My soul pants for you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And, and so I hope I speak for everyone here who is a follower of Jesus. Everyone here who has received the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is, the, the, for all of us who, who, for whom Jesus is Lord, that, that quite simply our desire is we want more of God. We want God to come down. We want, a, we want a greater manifestation of God's presence. We want more than just a theological conviction that God is with us. We want, the, we want the veil of his omnipresence to be stripped away so that we can experience the reality that God is with us and that God is good and that God is faithful and that God is kind. 
This, this idea of wanting God to come down, this idea of wanting to dwell in the very presence of the Lord and for God to move powerfully it is not necessarily comfortable, nor is it cozy. But I trust it's something that we want. I remember about 12 or 15 years ago, there was a, a very well-known preacher in the States who, who made this statement that he said, I am a charismatic with a seatbelt on. Essentially what he is saying is, I'm comfortable with the move and the power and the presence of God, but with certain caveats. And Christians all over the country kind of took that phrase and started repeating it without actually thinking through the implications. Do we really want the power and the presence of God on our terms? Do we really want the power and the presence of God in a way that we can define who he is and how he can work? I hope the answer is no. I've said often from this pulpit that a God that we can define, a God that fits into the comfort level of our understanding and our comforts, friends, is not a God worthy of worship. We want to experience the God of the Bible. We want to experience and hear God and, and know his affection for us and know his presence in a way where everything that this world would have to offer gets drowned out. That's what we want. And we want to experience this together. That was the essence or the, or the kind of key takeaway from Aidan's sermon last week when he taught on the, this call for us to pray together. And so what is our desire? Our desire is for God himself. We have to ask the question, how does our desire become a reality? And that's essentially what we are trying to answer through this series entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. According to James chapter four, verse two, we need to ask God. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. But it's not just asking and it's not just praying. According to Jesus in the gospels, it's asking and praying with perseverance and persistence. And Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter four, in, in Ephesians chapter six, that we are to pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. That includes quiet contemplation. That includes calling out to God with, with fervor and passion as we trust for his promises to be made known. It's, it includes calling on God as he has revealed himself. It includes worship. It includes being relentlessly responsive to every prompting to pray. Eric shared morning in the prayer meeting how that was something he did on the way this, to church this morning just felt the prompting to pray for little things and how he felt the Spirit of God stir up within him. All of this is done alone and all of this is done with others. And it includes fasting. I've said it. <laughs> Probably the most disliked and dismissed word in the New Testament. We're gonna be diving in and going after what the Bible teaches. So the Bible teaches that we should pray and the Bible teaches that we should fast. But the question you might be asking is why is that? If, if God has made his promises known, if God has particularly made it known that he wants to dwell with us, then why do we need to pray and particularly fast to ask God to do that? Well, before we go any further, I wanna make something abundantly clear, and I'm gonna be repeating this a few times through this morning. I, wanna, I want you to hear this. Prayer and fasting do not win us any merit with God. 
Prayer and fasting do not win us any merit with God. That's a demonic counterfeit that turns living grace into dead works. Prayer and fasting are grace-filled, God-given aids through which we change our heart towards God, not praying that God's heart would change towards us. Prayer and fasting turn the affections of our hearts towards God, not turn the affections of God's heart towards us. Friends, you need to hear this. This is the scandal of grace and the reason why the good news, that the reason why the gospel is good news. No matter what you've done, good or bad, no matter whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, God's affection for you cannot be turned any more intently toward you. That's the truth of the gospel. And so please, throughout the sermon, don't allow the devil to lie to you and, and get you to believe that, that fasting is somehow gonna turn God's affections towards you. God's affections are already turned toward you. I think understanding why we pray is probably a little easier than understanding why we fast. So let me just read a couple of verses just to kind of cement or secure that understanding of why we pray. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 19. I love this verse. How gracious God will be when, we, when you, when we cry for help, as soon as he hears us, he will answer you. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Friends, the Bible teaches us that God loves to bless us, his people, when we cry out to him in prayer. God loves it when we pursue him. Jeremiah 33, verse two and three, this is what the Lord says, call on me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. I hope that most of us here would understand and would agree with God's invitation and call for us to pray. But the question we wanna to answer today is, is God calling us to season that prayer with fasting? And if he is, which I'm gonna argue for today, then what role does fasting play in our desire to not only enjoy God, but experience his presence? I think the problem is though, most of us, including myself at times, either believe or we live like we believe that fasting is outdated and unnecessary. But the challenge, friends, is when we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus fasted. And when we read the New Testament, we see that the early church fasted and they fasted together. And when you read through church history, you see many men and women who, who experienced great kingdom breakthrough, both in history and today, also were men and women who prayed and fasted. So what role does fasting play in the revival of cities and the reversal of disaster? And we're gonna look at three things in particular. I'm gonna spend most of my time on the first one. Fasting expresses desire. Secondly, fasting reflects dependence. And thirdly, fasting unlocks deliverance. I hope that you are impressed with those three Ds. Fasting expresses desire, reflects dependence, 
and unlocks deliverance. Before we go any further, let me just make it very clear that I struggle to fast. I'm not standing here as someone who has uh, uh, embraced and, and, and owned this with ease. For many years back in South Africa, when myself and Debs were part of a leadership team at a church in South Africa, and also for many years in the first few years of helping to lead Anthem Church here in the States, I used to fast every Wednesday, which you might think, well, how does that sound? That doesn't sound like you struggle to fast. The, the problem was I did so legalistically and I did so out of compulsion. And strangely enough, God was eerily distant on Wednesdays. And not only that, but Debs was incredibly frustrated on Wednesdays because I was an absolute bear to live with. And so I packed the whole thing up and didn't fast at all. But the problem was I, I swung from one extreme of being legalistic about it to the absolute opposite extreme of dismissing it as absolutely unnecessary. And both are unhelpful responses to what the Bible teaches. But the challenge is, is that even as I've started to tiptoe my way back into embracing fasting as the Bible teaches, I, I found myself even doing it in a self-centered manner going into a fast, asking the question, I wonder what this is gonna do for me. And I often end the fast disappointed because I haven't heard God clearly say or seen God clearly do anything. But God's response to that kind of attitude is very clear in Zechariah chapter five, sorry, Zechariah chapter seven. He asks this question, when you fast, was it really for me that you fasted? Over and over again, friends, the Bible confronts self-centered Christianity, which is actually not Christianity at all. It's, it, and it confronts a, a self-centered response to, to fasting, warning us that, 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 that the fast should not be for our own benefit, but primarily as an act of worship and ministry unto God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 58, in the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson translates verse five and six like this. Do you think this is the kind of fast day that I'm after? A, a day to show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? And then in verse six, no, this is the kind of fast day that, I'm, that I am after. This is the kind of fast that ministers to God to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed and to cancel debts. We read in Luke chapter two that Anna the prophet says this, never left the temple, worshiping night and day, how? With fasting and prayer. And the leaders of the church in Antioch, in, in Acts chapter 13, we're told that, that they were worshiping the Lord with fasting. So let me suggest this as, a, as something of a motivation for our fast in this first particular point of fasting expresses our desire. Fasting is first and foremost an act of worship where we forego or set aside food for a time as an expression of our delight in the presence of the Lord and as a proclamation for our deep desire and longing for even greater intimacy with Jesus. Now I know that's a lot to uh, kind of hear and listen to, so I'm gonna take some time just to unpack that uh, kind of understanding of fasting is an expression of our deep desire 
for greater intimacy with Jesus. And to do that, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine. Again, this, the, the verses will appear on the screen behind me, but if you have a Bible, it's good to look at these verses. Matthew chapter nine, and we're gonna be reading from verse nine. The first few verses are gonna set the scene. The focus of this little Bible study is gonna be on verse 14 and 15. But we need to understand that what, what comes before. So reading from verse nine of Matthew chapter nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now let me just pause there, and, and, and I want, you, want to remind you, or to tell you if, you, if you're not aware of this, that eating a meal together in biblical culture was an expression of close relationship. Eating a meal together was, was a declaration of closeness and intimacy amongst friends. Verse 11, listen to the Pharisees' response. When they saw this, when they saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. Now, as I say, the focus is gonna be on the next two verses in a, in a moment, but the point of these verses is simply this, that closeness or intimacy with Jesus, remember he was having a meal with the, uh, with the tax collectors and sinners, closeness with Jesus is not achieved through self-righteousness. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for sinners. Self-righteousness, thinking that I've got this or, or thinking that Jesus can't reject me now because I've done this or done that actually gets in the way of God being able to work in our lives. How many of us have that mindset when it comes to fasting? Jesus, if I fast for you, if I give up a day of food, then surely you can't reject closeness or intimacy with me. Verse 14 and 15, let's look there. Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus this question. How is it that the Pharisees fast often? Sorry, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The, the question that they are asking is essentially the same question that the Pharisees were asking in verse 11. Remember in verse 11, Jesus, how come they get to eat with you? What have they done to, to deserve time with you? The point is, they've done nothing to deserve time with Jesus. Because time with Jesus comes through grace. And, and, and John's disciples, and sometimes we, if we are honest, ask the same question in verse 14. Jesus, how come we have to fast? The point is, you don't have to fast. The point is, we get to fast. And Jesus explains in verse 15, how Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom, how can the disciples or the followers of Jesus mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Friends, Jesus is not teaching if we should fast. Jesus is showing us when and why we should fast. Jesus endorsed fasting. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus fasted himself in Matthew chapter four, but he tells us when we should fast. The when of fasting, 
when the bridegroom, when Jesus goes and we right now are no longer with him. And why should we fast? The key word in verse 15 is the word mourn. Because Jesus is no longer with us, there's a mourning, there's a, there's a longing, there's a, there's a pain sickness because of separation that stirs us to pursue Jesus. My folks have unfortunately passed away. My mom passed away last year, my dad about five or six years ago. And there's a, there's a mourning in my heart for them. There's a, there's a pain sickness at not being able to be with them. And unfortunately, there's nothing that I can do about that other than wait for the day that Jesus returns or that I pass and go into heaven because my folks were both believers and I know that I will get to see them one day. Debs, my wife, is different. She, her, her mom and dad are both alive and she hasn't seen her family for about three, three and a half, nearly four years. There's a mourning in her heart there's a longing and a pain sickness in her heart. And that pain sickness, that mourning, is stirring her to do something, to pursue time with her family. She's doing everything she can, whether it's us flying to South Africa or them coming over here or perhaps we meet halfway somewhere in Europe. The pain over separation and the pursuit to be together is what fasting expresses. It expresses our longing and our desire to be with Jesus and to actively pursue him. And we pursue him through things like what? Reading his word, worshiping him, learning how to walk in step with the spirit, living a life of generosity, praying and fasting. So friends, Jesus is the why of fasting. Motivation with him, uh, sorry, intimacy with him is the motivation that stirs our hearts. The Bible, if you did a study on fasting, actually lists, lists seven or eight different reasons why we should fast. But in each of the reasons that are given in the Bible for why we fast, I wanna suggest to us, to you, that Jesus is the ultimate motivation. He's the one that comes and fills the longing and the gap in our hearts. Maybe you're here today and there might be one or a few of these reasons why you might need a fast. Perhaps it's to avert a crisis or a disaster. Jesus is our rescuer. Perhaps it's to experience the power of God in ministry. Jesus is our authority. Perhaps it's for, the, uh, for revival. Jesus is our savior. Perhaps it's to express sorrow. Jesus is our comforter. Perhaps it's a confession of sin over a city or a nation. Jesus is our redeemer. Perhaps it's to pr prepare for God's call. Jesus is our perfect example. Perhaps it's for understanding or divine revelation. Friends, Jesus is our wisdom. He's the reason why we fast. Now let's just end this little Bible study by looking at verse 16 and 17. Jesus goes on to say this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. What is the outcome of fasting? What is the result of fasting? The result is change. The result is transformation. The wineskins, which is my life, your life, our church, 
we begin to take on the nature of the wine, which is the spirit of God, which is the presence of God. We become people that adapt to, become sensitive to, begin to position ourselves wherever the wind is blowing. Fasting doesn't convince God to change his heart. It changes our heart towards him. So how does this work? Practically, friends, it's really simple. Maybe there is a stirring in your heart to set aside two or three days like we're doing as a church to focus our attention on Jesus, to pursue intimacy with Jesus. So we set aside two or three days to fast like we're gonna be doing in the next three days. But friends, fasting can be as simple as this. You're spending time with God in the morning, you're praying, you're reading his word, and your heart is stirred. And you think to yourself, you know what? I think I'm gonna forego breakfast. Those, those 15 or 20 minutes that it will take me to prepare and eat breakfast, I'm gonna forego breakfast so that instead of preparing and eating breakfast, I'm gonna be able to just spend a little bit longer in prayer. That's, a, that's as simple as fasting can be. It doesn't have to be this dogged discipline all the time. Fasting expresses desire and our desire is for Jesus. Secondly, and we're gonna take a lot quicker on the next two, fasting reflects our dependence. Our dependence on whom? Our dependence on Jesus. The Bible is full of, of warning uh, that a full stomach physically leads to pride spiritually. Moses says this to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter eight, God humbled you causing you to hunger, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Be careful, otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. God prophesied through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 13, God says this, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and when they were proud, they forgot me. I don't think it's hard for those of us living in this nation or in fact any person living in any Western nation for us to acknowledge and trace our rejection of God's word being linked to a time of relative prosperity. And we must be careful to think that is only something that could happen to a nation because it can happen to us as individuals as well. But when we fast, we make an active decision to empty our bellies for a time in order to feast on God and to increase our hunger for the things of heaven rather than our reliance on the things of earth. Perhaps there's a complacency in your heart for the things of God. I hope I've encouraged you and, and stirred your heart to make you realize that God does not come to condemn, but to, to draw us to him. And if there is a complacency in your heart towards the things of God, perhaps today is the opportunity for you to say yes to God's invitation in Joel chapter two, where he says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Fasting reflects dependence and our dependence is on God. And then lastly, fasting unlocks deliverance and our deliverer is Jesus. Now, some of you sitting here, as soon as you hear the word deliverance or as soon as you hear the word deliverer, you start to shut down because you think that's, that's not for me. Bible commentator William Barclay wrote this in the 1950s. 
This is, this is outrageous. It may seem fantastical to us, but the ancient peoples believed implicitly in demons, even if there are no such things. Now, hopefully all of us here are like dismissing that as absolute hogwash, but the challenge and the reality is, is that some of us here actually live like that is true. I'm not calling for us to be demon hunters and going after demons and looking for them in every single situation. But friends, I do believe the Bible calls us as the followers of Jesus by the Spirit of God to be alert to the work of the devil around us and maybe at times even upon us. But for us to know that in Jesus, as, as, as those of us who are submitted to him, we have a sensitivity in the Spirit and an authority given to us by the Spirit of God to be able to push back the work of the devil in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And so I say all that to say fasting is a key to freedom, which might sound outlandish to say that it is possible to fast and to find freedom and enjoyment. And I struggled with that because Wednesdays for me were not fun, they were not enjoyable, and I certainly wasn't free. But let me explain. God says this in Isaiah 58 about fasting. Listen to this. He explains the purpose of fasting. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, and to, and to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. Now fast forward to Luke chapter four, when Jesus comes into the synagogue in his hometown, and he grabs the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he declares what he has come to do. The Lord has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see the link between the two? And what happens next in Luke chapter four is absolutely remarkable. Jesus goes into a synagogue in the town of Capernaum, and he encounters a man who has been oppressed by the devil. He is, this man has been coming week after week after week into the synagogue, oppressed by the devil, and no one is able to even recognize or set the man free. It breaks my heart, friends, that there can be people in this nation, people in our city, who perhaps walk into churches, maybe even this one, and they walk out unchanged. That's not a burden for us to carry, but it should be a desire and a brokenheartedness within us to say, Lord, would you move in power and change their hearts? And Jesus sees this man, and with a word he sets him free. And so starts Jesus' ministry to keep true to his promise that he has come to set people free. And friends, deliverance was such a part of Jesus's ministry that years later, when Peter summarizes what Jesus has done, he says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And I don't want us to miss the link between Jesus's ease of pushing back the devil and the way his ministry started, which was the power of the Holy Spirit and 40 days of fasting. And if you're not clear of that link just yet, Mark chapter nine tells us this moment where a father brings a son who was oppressed by, his son who was oppressed by the devil, and he brings him to the disciples and he says, please set them free. And the disciples were unable to. And so they go to Jesus and they say, and essentially they say, Jesus, 
Why is there such fruitfulness in your deliverance ministry and such failure in ours? This is what Jesus says in verse 21. This kind, this kind of demon can only come out through a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it's clear that the disciples took Jesus' teaching to heart. Because throughout the book of Acts and throughout the, the epistles, we read time and time again of the apostles and the early church healing the sick, setting people free, planting churches in pagan cities, and prayer and fasting, all of which became a feature of New Testament Christianity. And friends, it is for us to continue. Fasting unlocks deliverance. And so as I bring this into land, I wanna say that what I said at the beginning again, fasting does not win us any merit with God. Fasting does not win us any merit with God. It's a demonic counterfeit that turns living grace into dead works. Fasting expresses our desire for Jesus, and uh, sorry, fasting expresses our desire, and our desire is for Jesus. It communicates to God that we love Him more than the fleeting pleasures of the earth. Fasting reflects our dependence, and our dependence is on Jesus. Quite simply, it humbles our heart before him. And fasting unlocks deliverance. And our deliverer is Jesus. In fasting, God has given us a mighty weapon in our spiritual armory, which has lost none of its power. It still has authority to demolish strongholds. So as we land this morning, I wanna go all the way back to the very beginning of my sermon when I asked us the question, what is our desire? Our desire is for God himself. And how are we hoping to see this desire become a reality through a lifestyle of prayer and fasting? And so over these next three days, what are we gonna be praying and fasting about essentially? In one word, it's for revival. It's for God to come down. It's for sin in our lives to be sensed and complacency shattered. And when I say that, don't, don't, don't hear condemnation because it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We long for God's word to be honored. We long for the lost to be loved and rescued. We long for biblical justice to be pursued for worship to be revitalized, for the church to be prioritized and no longer marginalized, and for there to be an intensification of the things of God. I read this quote this week. Maybe I can get the worship team up if you don't mind, Aiden. Someone said this, and I love this. You want revival when you cry out to God for more. You're in revival when you cry out to God, no more. I love that. You want revival when you cry out to God for more. You're in revival when you cry out to God, no more. I cannot guarantee that we are gonna see a revival after these three days of prayer and fasting. But can I say, it's, un it's unlikely to happen if we don't spend time in prayer and in fasting. I'm gonna ask if we can stand together. We're gonna to respond this morning. 
Jesus is not, Jesus is the reason why we fast, but Jesus is also the reason why we feast. And this morning as a start to our prayer and fasting over the next three days, which begins tomorrow, we're gonna be feasting on bread and grape juice which symbolizes Jesus's broken body on the cross and Jesus's spilt blood for us. Fasting is not the only way to express our desire for Jesus and our dependence on Jesus and our longing to be delivered by Jesus. We're gonna trust that God doesn't have to wait for the Wednesday night at the end of the fast, but that God can do something now in our hearts as we break bread together.